Francisco Goldman is a writer and a man who contains paradoxes, and his work also contains paradoxes, in which tenderness and torture live side by side, in which sweetness and humiliation share a dwelling place in the mind. So, uh, with all that said, he's somebody I've really looked forward to meeting. I've been aware of his work for a really long time. He operates on a lot of different levels. Uh, we're going to talk to him about his new thinly disguised piece of fiction that's clearly based on his own life and memories. It's called Monkey Boy. My guess is we will talk about a lot of things because he knows about a lot of things. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So when we're in transit, on a train from New York to Boston, on a plane from Hartford to Dublin, we're really nowhere in none of those places. And the mind takes the opportunity to wander through the gardens and the ash heaps of our pasts. This, we're told, actually can even happen while walking around Dublin of a day. We re-examine choices and journey through multiverses where our loves and lives are constituted differently. We dwell more on pain and embarrassment than on pleasure and triumph. In the novel Monkey Boy, our narrator takes us on one of those mental odysseys while indeed on a train from New York to Boston. And his mind takes a serpentine trip through the past in which the torture of high school humiliation leans against memories of actual tortured bodies in a morgue in Guatemala. And it's those kinds of tensions and paradoxes that really characterize the work of our guest today, Francisco Goldman, a writer and journalist. Uh, he has published five novels, including Say Her Name and two books of nonfiction. The Art of Political Murder, Who Killed the Bishop, is now an HBO documentary, which I recommend. And his new novel, which I also recommend, is Monkey Boy. He, who cares whether I recommend it? Why am I saying this? Uh, he teaches creative writing and, and literature at Trinity College one semester a year. Uh, and he's joining us right now, Francisco Goldman. Goldman, how are you? Good. Thanks, Colin, for that great intro. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm doing well. Where are you? I, I know you've been in Mexico City a bit lately, right? Well, we live in Mexico City. Yeah. And usually I come up for um, one semester a year, like you said, to teach at Hart in Hartford at Trinity. But I haven't been back. I, we left, I left um, Hartford in, you know, in, in March of started the uh, of the pandemic and haven't been back since. So, um, for people who are curious, give people your thumbnail uh, of Monkey Boy. We're going to meet Francisco Goldberg, who uh, seems like it might be kind of you know a very close doppelganger of yours. Um, tell us about uh, this particular Francisco. Well, you know, it's it's the changing that 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 man to a bird right away is like taking a first step into the moving machine of fiction right just that little step freed me from any obligation to be accurate and faithful to the actual actual facts of my life the way i would be if i were writing an autobiograph autobiography and gave me the freedom to, you know to invent in the way of fiction to look for for things to think through story no, in the way you can only do in fiction. And so 
uh, it's in some ways I'm obviously using things from my life uh, as I'm writing this novel, but I'm also leaving out a lot. And it's 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 it was a way to just tell a story with and think about things that were really mattered to me a lot at the time I was writing these, you know, uh, the novel. Um, among those things, uh, my mother. My mother was in a nursing home. She died in the middle of of the writing of this book. Mm. And I think that she's um, at the center of the book, my relationship to her contrasted with my relationship with my father. And I think another big theme of the book is, um, it, it, uh, you, you know, say her name, uh, you might know mm -hmm. is about uh, based on my relationship to Aura Estrada, my wife, who uh, at the age of 30 died from a, 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 a for, for broke her neck in the waves in Oaxaca. Uh, in 207, and that was an incredibly um, life-altering event for me. Uh, it took a long time for me to uh, get out of that, the, that, the grief of that incident. But I was also wanted to think about in this book, well, first of all, why did it take me so long to find love in my life, uh, uh, examine the things in my past you know, that, 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 that had made me, made me, inhibited me in some ways, and to try to like, so she's not in the book. So I'm basically also and this really makes it a novel, I'm kind of asking myself, what might my life have been like if I'd never met Aura? Uh, how much longer might it have taken me to find love in my life, right? So, so I met Aura when I was 47. In, in this book, um, you know, he's 49 right? mm -hmm. on this trip home, on this trip home to Boston. Yeah, um, in the promo for today's show, I think I, I called it something like uh, a Guatemalan Jewish Catholic American eight and a half. Uh, it, it has a little bit of that eight and a half quality, I, I think, and particularly because, you know, this is very much a book about women. I mean, you, you mentioned your mother, and by the way, condolences on her passing. Uh, and But this is a book about the women of your life, your mother, your sister, uh, many of these very sort of strong female presences from your life in Guatemala. I assume you're very conscious of that, that, that you're writing way more powerfully, I think, about the, the women of your life here. Yeah, you know, I, it, it, another friend, Alda's very best friend, Nati Paris, she read the book and she said, this is like, uh, this is your Todos Over Mi Madre, the Amadover movie all about my mother. So it's interesting that two movies in which male directors focused on their relationships to women, uh, you know, have, have been compared to this book. And I think that's very true. I knew I wanted to look at, uh, as I said, my relationship to women. I know from the start, my sister, I, you know, th thinks of our family as like we were three survivors of a very brutal household, right? And in many ways, a, a very brutal town. Uh, uh, I, 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 I think one of the Things like I said before that I really wanted to try to understand in this book was why I was sort of unable to love the woman I loved throughout, you know, my early life. Uh, as you said, my grandmother, my Guatemalan grandmother, uh, was a very strong uh, uh, figure in my life as I was growing up, and also very dominant and very decisive in in in, in some of the choices my mother made with her own life because my my grandmother was a uh, very strict. She was a wonderful woman, but she was a very, very strict Catholic. And so, um, I, I, you know, a, a really decisive moment in, in, in my mother's life was when she fled back to Guatemala with me as a boy, uh, really fleeing the abuse, uh, uh, my father's abuse. And I, well, and I might have, we might have stayed there. I would have grown up in Guatemala, but I got tuberculosis after a couple of years of being down there. And I think my grandmother saw my getting tuberculosis as sort of divine punishment for my mother having left my father. And we went back and my, she, my mother just should have, you know, it's pretty obvious when you read the book that you say, this poor woman, if only she could have divorced. Mm -hmm. uh, but because of that heavy Catholic, you know, uh, um, divorce was out of, the, out of the question. And so my, uh, my mother decided had to make a life for herself Right? She wasn't just going to be trapped in the house all day. And she decided she wanted to go to college. And so my grandmother used to send up these wonderful young women, the first one who came right out of an orphanage when she was like 15 years old. It was a different time, you, you know, back then. People, she, you know, she came up and, 
she was, you know, would do housework and, 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 and was like my second mother and was incredibly close to me. Well, my mother began to go to college and eventually my mother made herself into a college Spanish teacher. And I, but I throughout the rest of my life to this day, I'm very close to that woman who, who helped raise me. And you meet her in the book and you meet some of the, you know, it was a series of girls. I say like my, I say my grandmother basically founded a colony of young Central American women in the Boston suburbs that is now in its third generation, right? Some of them already having become grandmothers. Because the, the funny thing is they all come up to Boston to help take care of me and my sister. And eventually they all leave because they all get married. So, so you know, I think some of them stay for several years. One girl arrives and it's very mysterious. She arrives and two weeks later, she leaves to get married. And we never, I never understood how that could have happened. <laughs> and so, and you meet, you know, some of the, um, uh, you go, you, you, one of the things he's doing on this trip home to Boston is he's not just going to see his mother, but he's, Francisco Goldberg is kind of a semi-well-known writer and he's been on the radio and, a, and, a, and the woman he was, the girl he had a, a, a big unrequited love for when he was in the 10th grade and was probably his only important adolescent female relationship has heard him on the radio and has contacted him. So this is his first night in Boston. Of course, he's going to have dinner with her. Um, and so, you know, so yes, it's a novel about my relationships with, with women. And, and uh, I think that mirrors my own life without a doubt in the United States. It's a funny thing because I think here in Mexico and in Central America, I have some very good female friends, but mostly my, most of my close friends are probably male. And in the United States, it's the opposite. Um, I, I, I think, you know, the majority of my really close friendships in the U.S. are with women, including now that we have a daughter. It's funny, you know, we have a daughter now. I, I finally, you know, mm-hmm. I fell in love and remarried. Azalia is three years old now. And she has a squad of six godmothers. <laughs> and, and, and three of those godmothers are exes of mine who, who, mm-hmm. who, who I stayed close to, you know, through the years. So... So uh, uh, from the United States, so, so uh, you know, um, I wanted to look at you know, those relationships from my past, which, as you said, are with really, I think, very strong, uh, sometimes eccentric, fascinating um, women. I never understand why some people are so surprised. You know, that you often hear people saying, you know, uh, that men especially can't write about women or, or it's difficult for men to write about women. I, you know, I don't find that at all. Uh, partly because I grew up in a household, uh, you know, where I was a woman, basically. And my whole life, I've been very close to them. Uh, with, and, and, and so I don't find that inhibiting at all to try to write about women, honestly. Yeah, I always wondered about uh, how fussed up people get about that, too. I think there are other dichotomies and disparities that are much harder to bridge imaginatively. than I think it's harder for someone who's been basically well off all of his or her life to imagine what it's like to be poor than it probably is for a man to imagine what it's like to be a woman of a kind of similar social status. But yeah, actually, rather than go down that alley right now, though, one thing I wanted to talk about here, and just tell me if, I, if I'm getting this right, because I might not be. But it seems to me that that in that that Goldberg, in his reveries, in his thoughts, in his his visits to various parts of the past, there's a way in which, you know, pain is pain, and, and, and pain, emotional pain, can, and, and psychic pain can be caused by really extreme situations. He and you have been in situations in Guatemala in which the danger was very, very real. Uh, in fact, he and he has, and I assume you have at the point, left Mexico City partly because there's been an intercepted communication that indicates that, you know, maybe he's in danger right now and he needs 
to get out of that part of the world and, and be someplace right. else. You know, and so there's that, and there's this visit to the morgue where he sees tortured bodies, and there's these things that you know I've never experienced. That I would find just so existentially terrifying that I feel as though they would just trump everything and blot everything out. But I feel reading this as though some of the really, really visceral humiliations of high school, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, where uh, this name Monkey Boy and you make out with a girl and then there's this thing where supposedly she might have compared you to a monkey eating a banana while you guys are making <laughs> that, yeah. that, that That's as horrible in its own way, you know, that pain it is, is pain. It's horrible in its own way, yeah. Yeah, say a little well, bit more about that. That's exactly, you know, I think that it's really uh, great that you use the word, those experiences in Central America trump, you know, the trivial <laughs> humiliations mm. of daily life. Because that's exactly what I was trying to, I was trying to use that idea to frame the novel. I was sort of rebelling against the hierarchies we, I myself impose on my own life, have in the past, and that other people impose. So you've been down, you know, as I, I spent, you know, many, many years, all, my 20s, all of my 20s in Central America, uh, trying to write my first novel, but very close, and also working as a, supporting myself as a freelance journalist, uh, uh, very close to that incredibly violent human tragedy that was occurring. And I, you know, I've continued to live close to those things uh, uh, throughout my working life. And I think sometimes, you know, as a writer, I'm constantly, of course, asking myself what I still owe to that experience, right? What can I still tell about it? Because those things form you and you really feel you've witnessed such a combination of tragedy and suffering, but also generosity and bravery, bravery that you feel that you know, that's very important and, and, and that makes other things in your life less important. And I wanted to, and, and I realized that there's so much that happened in my life that I wasn't allowing myself to really write about because I myself was submitting to this hierarchy of what's really important and what's trivial. And I thought, well, what if, you know, if I go take a five day trip home, right? You know, to see my mother, to see some, you know, people I was close to, during those five days from New York to Boston, I'm not gonna be thinking all the time about the wars in Central America. I'm gonna be thinking about my mother. I'm gonna be thinking about the girl I'm gonna see. I'm gonna be thinking about, you know, uh, my relationship with my father, about growing up in this town that I'm now going back to. And, and, of course, I'm still going to be bringing those experiences, uh, you know, like, like the war in Central America with me. They're still a part of who I am. But you're not going to dominate the narrative of these five days. And that's really what I – so it was a way of freeing myself to write about these those other things that really set me off, you know, set me down the road of writing Monkey Boy. And, you know, a big difference is you, you have a different – you know, you look at those incredibly painful – uh, humiliations of your youth, and even you know the really brutal violence, uh, you know, in the relationship with my father, and because you have it in a different perspective, so many years have passed. You're who you are now. Um, you know, it's really important to to understand in this book. Like, like this is not about the solemnity of victimhood in any way. I'm not saying, oh, poor me. You know, I had to. to you know, these things have to be told. The way you experience them now, which is which is painful, but also with humor. You know, so many things were just so absurd. So I really had fun um, writing about <laughs> some of those youthful humiliations. Like, yeah, you know, my first kiss, what a what a complete catastrophe. You know, supposedly the girl said she felt like a banana being chomped on by a monkey, and the whole school like was, you know, t- picked up that refrain, and I was being mocked for weeks and. It was horrible. It really did traumatize me. And, and it was a kind of layered sense of betrayal, too, because you thought the words might not have come from her, but from a kind of, quote unquote, friend of yours who yeah. might, have, might have put those words in her mouth. If, he if I he was a very expression. charismatic bully who really dominated a lot, not just a lot of my childhood youth, but, you know, he was a lot of other kids in her, around me. Right. He was one of those people that that, yeah, you know, you never forget. Right. He probably never thinks about us. But here we are, <laughs> you know, all these years later, remembering, you know, his his reign of terror over middle school and high school. You know, That's really true. You know, uh, reading the book, I, I was also I, I my mind flashed back a couple of times to a, a Neruda poem that I really love. It's called "Let's Wait," and, and at the end of it, he says, uh, "Artisans of the soul are building 
and weighing and preparing days bitter or precious that will knock at your door in due time to award you an orange or murder you in cold blood where you stand. And I think you know there's a lot of that in your book. There's this kind of sliding doors sense that, you know, the door slid open one way and th- this one set of things happened. Had it slid open a different way, had you walked through a different aperture, a whole other different set of things happened. At the end of the book, you're really talking about this witness connected to this very famous um, uh, assassination uh, of a bishop in, in Guatemala. If I hadn't met the witness, I would, my life would be different. If I'd been born in Guatemala, I would have been impressed into, conscripted into the army. I'd probably be dead from the endless wars there. There's that, you know, I, I feel that there anyway, that you're sort of toying with those questions, uh, right. of the, the arbitrariness that Neruda describes at the end of that poem. That's such a good perception, right? I mean, for me, the aesthetic model for this novel was we here have right near my house where I live, the famous architectural masterpiece of, of Luis Baragan, the Baragan house. And what I loved about that house is it looks like just a normal, functional, classical, modernist house. But as you move through it, every room is a surprise, right? And I wanted my book you know, to, to feel that way. It's like going forward like a kind of normal novel, but you're constantly like being surprised by what comes up next. And I think that I was, and that was a way of like looking at at sort of the arbitrariness of the way things unfold in life and, and co- combined with the decisions you make and how they affect you. Um, and so, you know, you know, when I talk about like, you never stop feeling that you owe things to say your experience in Guatemala, right? It's, uh, and it's, and, and so the, it, 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 uh, for Francisco Goldberg, even to a greater degree than for Francisco Goldman, to be honest, but still to some degree, the art of political murder, uh, you know, the crime that that book is based on um, changes his life. And, 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 and that crime, that book, and this is true, would never, would not exist if it weren't for that witness, right? This mm-hmm. homeless man who lived in the park, who was actually an ex-soldier who had been infiltrated by military intelligence to spy on the bishop, right? And was somehow uh, pressed into taking part in the murder that night. And they were sure he would never speak, that he would, because he, because if they could, you know, he would die if if he ever spoke out. But he was an incredibly crafty, wily survivor and made his way, uh, 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 you know, he had a, he had this longing for dignity and, you know, and, and, and wanted to appease his own conscience. He did the bravest thing I'd ever seen this, right? He had no power at all, but he, um, began to collaborate with the prosecutors. And if he had not become a witness, that, that uh, case would never have gone to trial even, never mind uh, uh, the, the military officers having been convicted. I never would have written that book and my life would be quite different, right? And so, and now, uh, at, at, during the time I was writing the book, interestingly enough, the prosecutors had lost track of the witness. They didn't know where he was. And uh, they were asking me if I knew where he was, and I didn't know. So that's one reason in the book, you know, he kind of imagines that people thought it was possible that maybe he crossed over into the United States, like so many people fleeing for their lives in Central America and Mexico do. And so, it, you know, so that's why he keeps popping up in, in the narrative of Monkey Boy, where, where Francisco Goldberg keeps imagining that he sees them in different places and is sort of thinking about uh, what he means in his life. Uh, for the art of political murder, for the documentary movie, we did, in fact, finally track him down. Um, but and that was remarkable too. Yeah, you know, the, the art of political murder and this book, I think, raise a question that most of us don't really have to face at quite the same level, which is how long do you hang in there? How long do you stay before you feel like you have to leave? I mean, in the Haradi case, you know, there's a prosecutor who obviously means to do well. And at a certain point, he just thinks, no, I just I got to get out of here with my family because it's just too dangerous. And then another prosecutor comes in and kind of really does wrap up the job. Similarly, there are magistrates. There's a series of judges, I think, who just can't hang in there. And then this incredibly brave woman kind of steps up. And, And that's there for you, it's there for everybody. You know, I mean, there's a woman named Ursula who gives you the tour of the morgue, and I, so many of the things are punctuated. Well, now she's in Canada, or now she's in California, or people yeah. who just sort of had to get out of there, or their families made them get out of there, or whatever. But it's a really interesting question: is how do you know 
when you have to leave? How do you avoid staying too long? You know, and and it's one yeah. that you had to face. There are these descriptions in the book of this, you know, beer bottle and and soda bottle alarm system that you and this woman named Penny Moore have, which is the only yeah. way you're going to know if a death squad is coming into your apartment. And at that point, you've got a garden tool <laughs> you're gonna, <laughs> that you're going to try to fight them off with. I mean, it must be sort of in your mind all the time. Yes. Somebody could be coming to the door with an orange or with a gun. Yeah. In that particular house, I had a hilarious um, uh, system rigged up. So if the bottles broke because somebody was coming through the window, that was our alarm system, uh, bottles on chairs under the windows. If I heard a glass break, I knew to run to a certain window where I had tied a rope from which I would be able to like <laughs> let myself down into the uh, into the patio of the next door neighbor's house. <laughs> and when I moved back to New York after that period, I went back to New York after that terrifying long period in Guatemala. And I remember uh, my, 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 I still had a subletter in the house that I went back to in New York. And so um, I was in the bedroom and he, and he was sleeping in the, uh, in the living room and he broke a glass <laughs> and I reflexively jumped out of bed and ran to where my window would have been in Guatemala City. Mm. And I ran face first into the wall. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, it's a, how do you know when to get out? You know, it's a, in the case of that prosecutor, well, it's when they started to follow his children home from school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That will make anybody leave. Yeah. Right. The prosecutor who stayed, he was insanely brave. Mm -hmm. um, they, they were threatening him constantly. They uh, 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 set people up. They were walking on his roof at night. Um, he hung in there till he got those convictions and then left the country with his family the very next day and didn't mm -hmm. come back for years. He's yeah. back now working as a prosecutor again. Um, the, 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 you know, it's, I think that a country like Guatemala and some of the other Central American countries and Mexico too, you know, if, if the, the, the way power works in those countries they're designed to completely humiliate and break people who are decent and brave in those positions. And what happens is you get some of these judges and you get some of these prosecutors finally, and they say, you know, I didn't become a judge to, to be a coward and get down on my knees and, 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 and let these evil people, you know, uh, these corrupt people trample over me. You know, I became a prosecutor because I wanted to prosecute cases. And finally, something like that stiffens in them. It's a remarkable thing to see. Re it's not about political ideology, like sometimes people think. You know, so more often it's about like, you are not going to break me. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to do what I always dreamed of doing, whatever it costs. And that's very rare. Mm. It's so rare that, 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 that victories against that kind of... Uh, evil in the legal system in those countries are incredibly rare. But now and then, as happened in the Harari case, you have enough people together, right? Mm -hmm. Prosecutors, judges, investigators that, that band together and all do it at once and are lucky enough to get some international support because that's important too. And it happens. And that's what made the art of political murder. Uh, you know, that story tells the story of a really remarkable accomplishment and a rare one. It really right? does. I haven't seen anything like that in Mexico. All right. We're going to have to take a little break here, uh, and we're going to come back with lots more. Francisco Goldman, his new novel is Monkey Boy. We'll be back after this. There's something here
When we think of slavery in the U.S., we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. We are back. Uh, I am talking with Francisco Goldman, writer, journalist. Uh, he's published five novels, two books of nonfiction. The Art of Political Murder, Who Killed Who Killed the Bishop, is now an HBO documentary in which he appears. It's based on his book. Uh, his new novel is Monkey Boy. He cr teaches creative writing and literature at Trinity one semester a year, Trinity College in Hartford, that is. So I wanted to ask you a little bit. I mean, first of all, we should say Monkey Boy straddles geographically different worlds as well, um, and, and including quite a bit set in, in Boston. Um, and you still, you know, live an American life at times and teach at Trinity and stuff like that. I'm just sort of wondering how. Can I even phrase this? So there's this phrase that I kind of developed during the Trump era, uh, which was the narcissism of the present moment, which is the tendency of people, particularly I think Americans, to think if they're thinking that something's really bad, if they're thinking the Trump era is really bad, they think it's the worst period in history. And they'll say that this is the worst thing that's ever happened. And, and I found myself saying, well, I don't know. I lived through like 69, 70, 71 in America. That was pretty bad. I mean, we haven't had like a Kent State thing or weather underground bombings and stuff. I'm not sure this is even the worst moment of my lifetime. But it must be weird and, and, and jarring if you have lived through, say, the 80s in Guatemala, uh, and then you see people reacting. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, it, maybe it has two different ways of, uh, of exciting you. On the one hand, maybe you, I don't know if, you, if it all looked to you like, oh, yeah, no, I know what this looks like, and I, I know what it could lead to, and you're right to worry. But it did, did, maybe you felt that way. But did you also feel like, yeah, this is bad, but boy, you guys haven't seen bad. You don't know what bad looks like. <laughs> oh, that's a hard one, yeah. right? Because they're, I mean, you know, the United States and Central America, did such different circumstances. Honestly, uh, what happened in Guatemala in the 80s, you know, the UN called it a genocide, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't get worse than that, right? Hundreds, you know, you know, 200,000 civilians, essentially. Young people. M young people, uh, especially young people, uh, you know, a woman slaughtered, right, uh, by a U.S.-backed military. And, and it didn't have to happen, right? It was completely so, just so wasteful and and so cruel and, and and what did it lead to i mean those countries right now are an extraordinary crisis because it didn't lead to democracy it led to essentially narco states right these mm. countries that are that are completely run by and, and and what you saw in the last years was just how important it is for the u.s to try to have some you know after, after the cold war to, you know you, there's no such thing as being a hypocrite in history. You know, you react to the moment. And just because the U.S. did bad things in the 80s doesn't mean they can't do good things, you know, after, you know, in the 90s and 2000, right? It doesn't, one doesn't cancel out the other. And so it's a long story, but the U.S. came down the sides from George W. Bush through Obama. The U.S. really tried to help uh, uh, strengthen justice institutions in places like Guatemala and Central America. It was still very difficult. You could say, you know, it just, it managed to, 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 to hold off the, 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 uh, uh, the complete descent into, into, into narco state corruption. Um, Trump undid that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Trump actively abetted uh, that end of the rule of law in those countries. Um, partly because he wanted things from Central America. He, right, he wanted them to collaborate with him on immigration and things like that. And those were very corrupt rulers. 
And so in return, they essentially were allowed to consolidate the hold of, of organized crime on those states. And now it's probably maybe too late. Right now what's going on there is so horrible. So you think all that war, you know, all those people dead, and this is what it led to, right? Not democracy, but completely criminal regimes, uh, partly because at a very critical time, the United States made itself absent which is strange to think because so many of us, you know, don't, you know, sometimes think, well, the U.S., it's better the U.S. not get involved. Well, that's not really true, right? And um, and so, you know, what was Trump, right? I mean, was Trump the worst I've seen? I, I think morally he was the worst I've seen. And I was just even thinking this morning because I was reading in the New York Times about the huge, massive rise of anti-Semitism in the U.S., and you remember Charlottesville and, you know, those people chanting Jews will not replace us. You think what's happening with Asian Americans and all the attacks on Asians. And of course, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the black uh, the killings by policemen, of, you know, of unarmed, often usually unarmed black people. Uh, and, you, and, and, and it just really is dismaying. I mean, I have to say the state of the United States right now, with just so much unleashed hatred um it alarms me i don't you know i i i i've never seen a period like this i know the 60s were violent in a different way mm-hmm. uh, i just think that something is i th- i think that something got broke in the united states uh and we see it in like, this kind of really uh, unprecedentedly polarized political system i think you know i think it's true that something has ended Right, something that has ended. Some people say that neoliberal, uh, uh, you know, basis of of American politics or something, and and we're teetering between a future that's still not quite defined, and whether that will be more populist, or whether that will be autocratic and you know extremely right wing. That seems to be in in, in what used to be called the center seems to have eroded. Uh, tremendously. I don't know if that's uh, how things are going to play out, but that's kind of how it looks now. Um, and, and, and I think it is kind of alarming, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't know how, you know, I mean, I can theorize, you, I'm sure, you know, we could all sit around and think about how we could improve it. I, you know what, I think what it's just time. I think young people, I teach at Trinity, as you know. Mm-hmm. And so when you, when you sit there, you have a, Birds I see to what's going on with young people, right? And how they change over the years. And I've been stunned by just how wonderful so many of these young kids are. Right? Mm-hmm. I've really seen a change. And and um over the last, I don't know, it's the last five years or or something like that, where the kids just seem so uh, tolerant of each other and, and the good, you know, not everybody, there's exceptions, right? But um, just as a whole, right, they really seem to have, uh, uh, you know, have developed in a way that makes you hopeful for the country. You know, they know what's at stake. They're, they're, they're politically alert. They're politically smart. They're not uh, fanatics. Uh, they seem to want solutions to problems. Um, they think big, you know, like how are we going to handle climate change? You know, yeah. and, 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 uh, um, so they give me a, a feeling of optimism and yes, you know, and I hope my daughter, right. will will uh, obviously it means so much to me that, that things evolve, you know, improve and, and that we see, um, younger people start, start, uh, moving our societies in a better direction. I, I, cause I think the, uh, my generation, perhaps your generation, the so-called baby boomers and so forth. I don't think we've done such a good job. No, and I'm surprised that younger people, I don't know, I, I occasionally, this past spring I taught at Yale, uh, and I'm always am, I, amazed that undergraduates aren't more angry 
<laughs> at baby boomers. And I mean, yeah. I, you know, I, in, if anything, I sense in them almost the opposite, a kind of sense of, you know, and maybe this is because these Yale students are just sort of very high achievers and self-flagellating, you know, uh, people who just push themselves so hard all their lives. But I, I almost see them thinking like, oh, no, how can I repeat that kind of success? How can I, you know, I mean, not not to, at the expense of the environment or social justice or anything like that, but they seem very eager, you know, to do well. Um, uh, they haven't descended into some kind of nihilism or rejection. But this, I don't know, we may be looking at very unusual subsets of a generation too. Maybe, right? Yeah, that I don't know. Um, another thing that just impressed me is, despite the pandemic, the pandemic has been really hard for young people. Mm. I mean, it's been so isolating, right? I mean, imagine if we go to college and missing, like, basically missing the for, you know a year and a half of of your college time, being having to either stay home or abide by the rules of the pandemic and so forth. But another thing that really did impress me, teaching these last couple of years. First of all, how international, you know, through the internet, obviously, through Wi-Fi and all that, people, young people are really internationally connected, right? So even in my classes, I had kids, like, they couldn't come to campus, so they were, like, checking into their Zoom classes from China. We had this, uh, you know, we had Muslim kids in the class, people from all over. Mm -hmm. And and I think that, that at, at some level, young people, you know, are not so confined by this idea of like America first, nation first, we're mm -hmm. only in our nation that defines, as we've seen, you know, older generations. And I think that it's their na the nature of the way they communicate with each other and the way they conceive the world as more interconnected uh, and facing problems that threaten not just the U.S., but the whole world, uh, which the pandemic has certainly uh, made us even more aware of how things threaten the whole world, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think bodes well, but we'll see, right? I, you know. We will see. All right, we have to take one quick break here. We're going to come back. This is going very fast, which is a good sign if things seem like they're going <laughs> fast, but uh, with Francisco Goldman. You, who are on the road, must have a code that you can live by. And so, become yourself, because the past is just a goodbye. Teach your children well, their father's hell did slowly go by, and feed them on your dreams. All right. As usual, uh, I have uh, to uh, thank and want to thank Kat Pastor, the technical producer of the show. She's here in the building in the studio with me, uh, although she is, you know, we are separated by glass. Um, one of us is in a diorama. We haven't really decided which one. Uh, and uh, also, of course, Betsy Kaplan, producer of this episode. Francisco Goldman is most recently the author of Monkey Boy. He's a writer and journalist, uh, and he has published five novels, including this one. So, and two books of nonfiction, etc. All right. So, you know, there's so many things. This has gone by kind of fast. <laughs> and there's so many things, at least for me it has, uh, so many things that I wanted to talk about. And I'd love to be ending on a high note, but it might not work out that way. Maybe we'll get to the high note. I, I, what, so Betsy Kaplan and I have been talking for weeks and weeks and maybe months and months now about grief. And, and I've, been, I've had a really hard year in terms of the two people closest to me in my life. Uh, things are happening to them. And, and it made me realize that I'm 66 years old, and prior to this, I don't think I had experienced grief. I had experienced deep sorrow. I took care of each of my parents as they were declining and dying, you know, and it was very sad about that. But boy, 
There's this other thing, like grief. It's like this dark serpent that's inside you that doesn't even seem like it belongs in this world. And it just kind of rears up uh, and just bites you yeah. from the inside. And, and, and I started to feel like there's – if you haven't experienced that – it's one of the reasons I kind of like and trust Biden because I know he's been through that. And and that's something yeah. you deal with a lot, too, was this whole of like, what is this grief thing? And then what do you do after it? Yeah, I was not prepared for it. Right. It was uh, I thought I'd known loss. I thought I'd known sad things. I'd say I was not prepared for, for what happened, you know, from from uh, it, it it's otherworldly, like you said, you know, one minute, especially sudden grief right mm-hmm. i mean i mean there's so many kinds of grief and they can devastate us in different ways i think the loss of a child is something that i don't see how anyone really ever gets over it mm-hmm. but uh going from one second to being a husband whose life is sort of defined by his marriage and his hopes for creating a family in the future and everything else and then in one split second suddenly you're a widow widower right <laughs> with this shattered life um who in their heart and soul still feels like a husband it's it it it, it, it i had no idea i had never suspected that i had those kinds of tears inside me mm-hmm. i had never sobbed like that in my life i had never uh, i had you know and, and, and people know that um you know traumatic grief actually affects the brain uh you know, we hear about hallucinations and things like that and those are caused because the the trauma of grief essentially uh, uh scar- puts lesions in brain synapses that usually kind of keep our subconscious our unconscious and our conscious minds apart and what happens during traumatic grief is like the unconscious kind of starts leaking into the day which is why it can be so trippy and you have those really weird hallucinations like I was having during my that grief period. Um, one thing that to me, I, I, I you know, say, you know, I, I say her name, you know, that those first three years after Otto's death and even the first five were just so completely intense. And of course I would never say I miss the intensity of those days, but I know I will never know anything so intense mm-hmm. again. And so focused again, you know, I was just, I kind of withdrew and, and worked on my book and I refused to sell the book. I didn't want to take money for the book. And I lived with, you know, and I just knew what did I want to do with that book, say her name. I wanted to one, not let, I, it was the opposite of the usual grief prescription. I did want to, I didn't want to let out a go. I wanted to keep her with me. And the way I kept her with me was making up scenes between us, like as though she was still there. You know, so I wanted to do a portrait of her where it would seem so intimate. You would feel like she's there breathing and speaking on the page. No. And it was kind of like sacrificing myself to be able to do that because it was like the opposite of letting go. Yeah. So so it was that. But I also wanted to give a record about what I was living through because the book goes back and forth between recreating her life and our love and talking about grief and so often some days you know i would have like a weird hallucination and it would go right into the book <laughs> so i think the book is a palpable uh record or, or depiction of what traumatic grief can be like and uh, one thing i learned you know through the years because and, and you know there's other books some of the famous grief books they kind of try to present the ideas of how you should live through grief. And that's fine. And that's going to help you. That's a good thing. Uh, but this book doesn't do that. My book, I wanted to show you how it can be, mm-hmm. right? And I think that can be helpful for people too. Because, you know, not everyone acts like a hero in grief. Not everybody is, like, as cool and collected as, you know, some writers about grief have been. Some of us just totally fall to pieces. And that's okay, right? It's really important to understand that everybody's grief is different and everybody's going to, everybody's grief is going to last for a different amount of time. And because one person grieves for a shorter period of time, it doesn't mean their grief was less meaningful, right? It's just different for everybody. And that's the main thing. If you know someone who's grieving, 
or you yourself suddenly find yourself in grief, just remember that the best way through grief is to listen to it and allow it to take its course and, 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 and you know, uh, don't try to hide from it. I think the worst thing you can do is try to repress it and run away from it, right? The, the, the best way out of grief is by going through it. That's a really good way to put that. Yeah, the best way out of grief is to, to is to go through it. I, I you know, said people keep mentioning to me this book called "The Body Keeps Score." <laughs> I keep thinking I don't need to read that book. First of all, the title tells me everything I need to know. You know, yes, I understand. Yeah. I mean, to your point, the brain is is keeping score, but the, I, I'm sure there's these tensions and all these kinds of things. Um, you know, just very quickly, we only have like a couple minutes left here. I, I, we should say that it looks as though, uh, say her name will become a movie, and I mean. I don't know, you'll in a way have to go through this all over again uh, or, or, or maybe, be, yeah, go ahead. I have distance from it. You know, I, I got through it, right? Mm-hmm. That's what I mean. Like I got through it. It's, <laughs> it was hard and I got through it. So I'm fine dealing with it now. And, um, and yeah, it was crazy. I had this fellowship at Harvard in 2018, 2019, in the spring of 2019, I was sitting in my office. I get a phone call. It's Benicio del Toro, the actor. <laughs> And I knew that there was a script that they were trying to make it a movie. They'd show me the script that, you know, to be honest, I hadn't been so crazy about it, but you know, you know, and he said, I really want to do this movie, but I don't want to do this script. I want a script that's like the book. And I remember we talked on the phone for like two and a half hours. He's amazing. Mm. I mean, that guy, he'll like take one sentence out of the book and imagine a whole movie scene out of it. Mm. And uh, we've been working, he and I, uh, we worked close on the script for, you know, two, ever since. Yeah. Off and on, right? That other stuff, and and yeah, well, now they're out there. They got an actor. They have the whole package, and now they're out there, uh, in that stage of you know, getting the money. <laughs> so, I mean, it is Benicio del Toro. He's Latin America's uh, greatest male star. So that gives me hope. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, every girl in Mexico seems in love with him in some way. Right, you mentioned Benicio del Toro, and they swoon. So Benicio del Toro as me, Frankie G, is pretty funny. <laughs> My wife. <is> <laughs> no, I can, I can, actually, I can sort of. When this was first mentioned, I thought I can. I mean, I don't really know you or anything like that, but I can sort of see this. I think actually, you know, even listening to you talk and stuff like that, I could see him, him getting you. Uh, so yeah, we, I, we get I, along I, really well. And don't forget, he's Puerto Rican, yeah. right? But he really grew up in Philly. Right. So, yeah, you it's like it's like Philly guys, Boston guys, and yeah. it's so different. No, or some, some, or some, or some people would say, some people would say that's an unbridgeable chasm, Philadelphia and Boston. Well, that's what makes them alike, right? That's what makes them similar. (laughs) So we have to, we have to stop. Unfortunately, I could uh, happily talk to you for another hour, but uh, they don't give me that. It's been great, Colin. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I did too. Uh, Thanks so much. And the book is wonderful. Uh, It's it's Monkey Boy by Francisco Goldman. It is a novel. It is very much based on, on events of his life, but on on things in his mind too. And it's how the whole world can be contained in a very brief time. Especially if you're sort of traveling, moving around, things are coming back to you.